What does it mean to live biblically? That very question uh, perplexed the agnostic editor-at-large of Esquire magazine. And so he decided he would set out for 12 months and live biblically. I'm going to follow every rule in the Old Testament. I went to his website. Out of the uh, 12-month journey, he's written a book. Simon & Schuster is just releasing the book. And uh, there on the screen, you'll see the title of the book, The Year of Living Biblically. So I'm at his website and he's describing this project. Let me read it to you. The year of living biblically is about my quest to live the ultimate biblical life, to follow every single rule in the Bible as literally as possible. I obey the famous ones, the Ten Commandments, love thy neighbor, be fruitful and multiply. But also the but but also the hundreds of oft ignored ones do not wear clothes of mixed fibers, do not shave your beard, stone adulterers. Why? Well, I grew up in a very secular home. I am officially Jewish, but I'm Jewish in the same way the Olive Garden is an Italian restaurant. <laughs> I thought that was pretty good. Actually, not too bad, huh? A.J. Jacobs is his name. Um, I'd always assumed religion would just wither away and we'd live in a neo-enlightenment world. I was, of course, spectacularly wrong. So was I missing something essential to being a human or was half the world deluded? I decided to dive in head first and he does. And the book is a result. How year living biblically. Huh? How to live biblically, of course, is a very premise for this series that you and I are in the thick of right now. The series called The Chosen. And we've come into this kind of the, 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 the gut of this series with four controversial questions that we're examining together. You raised the questions in our spring pulpit series. I went over that this summer. I saw those and I said, we're going to have to address them. Questions about the profit of the chosen. Done it. Questions about the diet or alcohol of the chosen. Done it. Questions about the dress of the chosen. Going to do it today and questions finally about the sexuality of the chosen that will be next sabbath and only in second service are we ending these four presentations with live q a so you'll have an opportunity in just a moment i was surprised how many stepped to the mic last week no planted questions we just get right into it if you wish so how do we live biblically Especially in the context of this story we are about to share. Once upon a time, there was a chosen people called the children of Israel who went through a moral meltdown and through it found out how much of naked is acceptable. Open your Bible with me, please, to the second book of the Bible. That would be the book of Exodus. If you didn't bring a Bible, you've got to grab that pew Bible right in front of you. Pull it out. Exodus chapter 32. If you're using the pew Bible, that would be page 61 in the pew Bible. It's the same translation of, as what I'll be reading out of here, which will be the New King James Version. Once you read this story, you will never forget it. All right, Exodus 32, verse 1, right at the top of Exodus 32, verse 1. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain. Oh, I'd love to just shoot a chase a little rabbit right there, because it's whenever we think there's a delay going on that we get in trouble. We change our behavior. We adapt our our uh, lifestyle because there's a delay. They think there's a delay, right? 
But we'll leave that one alone. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron. That would be second in command. Kid brother Moses is at the top of the mountain. Aaron, older brother, they come to him and they say to him, come, make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Give me a break, guys. You know exactly what's become of him. Don't you give me this. Because you think about it. The very last people story, people story in Exodus is right after the Ten Commandments. Watch this. Keep your finger right here because we're going to come back. But just turn back to Exodus chapter 20. Everybody knows the Ten Commandments chapter, Exodus 20. Don't you tell me you don't know what happened to him. You watch this. Okay. Ten Commandments are given at the end of verse 17. The end. Now, verse 18, Exodus 20, verse 18. Now, all the people, see, everybody saw it. All the people witnessed the thunderings and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Verse 19. Then they said to Moses, hey, you speak with us and we will hear. But let not God speak with us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear. For God has come to test you, that his fear may be before you, so that you may not sin. So, verse 21, the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. They saw Moses climb that mountain. Don't you tell me you don't know where he is. He's on top with God. You know that. You know that. Okay. Put your, go back to your finger there at uh, Exodus 32. We'll pick it up in verse 2. So the people come to Aaron. And Aaron, verse 2, Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So, verse 3, all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. Where did they get the earrings? Uh, last night, when they are fleeing Egypt, Those neighbors in Egypt are so fed up. They are so worried that the entire nation is going to be destroyed that they heap. The the Egyptian neighbors heap their gold, their jewels and their jewelry on top of the children of Israel and said, just get out of here before we're all dead. God intended that. He said, I'm going to use that. We'll melt it down and I'll build a sanctuary out of it. Okay, so that's where they got it. And now notice verse four. And he, Aaron, received the gold from their hand. And he fashioned it with an engraving tool and he made a molded calf. Then they said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow is the feast of the Lord. Poor Aaron, second in command. If only this leader had held the line. If only this leader had stood up for principle, if only he had refused to compromise, the story would have been vastly different. But how easy it is for those of us who lead to give the children what they want and not what they need. Early the next morning, verse 6. I mean, these guys cannot wait. They they cannot wait. And so, verse 6, they rose early on the next day. They offered burnt offerings and they brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. It is party time, dude. And they did. The Hebrew word for uh, party right here is not party. Actually, the Hebrew word for rose up is sakak. Sakak. It's the same word Mrs. Potiphar uses when she's pressing sexual advancement charges against Joseph. This boy came in here to sock me. 
It's the same word in Genesis that describes uh, the, 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 the Lord of the Philistines looking out his window and seeing Isaac and Rebekah caressing. The King James says they were sakeking. And he said, wait a minute. He told me that was his sister. You never do that to a sister. Same word. Point being, ladies and gentlemen, this is no church social they're having early in the morning. This is sexual play. Where do they get it from? Ah, where do you think they got it from? They got it from Egypt. You've probably already figured this out, haven't you? The chosen have always been tempted to make the fallen culture around them their default position in practice. And so the record reads, and they rose up to play. Meanwhile, back on the top of the mountain, there is a heartbroken God and a devastated, crestfallen leader. Oh, Moses. The voice speaks out of the shadowy glory. Moses, Moses. I can't believe it. I just counted them. They have broken all ten of my Ten Commandments. It's over, Moses. I'm telling you. It's over. So what I'm going to invite you to do is just stand back because I'm going to nuke them right now. And then, boy, it'll be you and me. I'll make a great nation out of the two of us. What do you say? It's one of those heart-stopping scenes in all of Scripture and sacred history. When in response, Moses falls to his face... And begins to intercede, begins to pour his heart out, pleading for the forgiveness of this people who just days earlier, by the way, chapter 17, they are threatening to stone their leader to death. He is begging God, you can't kill him. You just can't destroy them. Please, I beg of you. It's the most profound illustration in human experience, in all literature. This is the most profound reflection of the intercessory ministry of Christ. In human form. When Jesus, there on that uh, center cross, prays to the Father, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Moses is Christ. In this scene, and then there's another scene as you turn the page near the end of the chapter. And the heart of God is, as Moses sobs and pleads for Israel, the heart of God is strangely moved. And he had had a suspicion that divine love was going to be Reflected through this human instrument. And so verse 14 reads, And the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. Changed his mind. He talked me out of it, Moses. Now Moses turns around. Oh boy, trouble coming. Verse 15, And Moses turned and went down the mountain, and there were two tablets of the testimony. This is verse 15 in his hand. The tablets were written on both sides, and on the one side and on the other they were written. Verse 16, Now the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, the handwriting of God engraved in those two stone tablets. And as they're making their way down that shaly slope, they can't see the valley yet, but Joshua now hears the sound, the sounds coming from the base of Mount Sinai. And because he can't see, in alarm, he exclaims to Moses, he says, My Lord, there is war going on in that camp. And Moses says, Moses says, No, 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 no. Moses, verse 18, It is not the noise of the shout of victory, nor the noise of the cry of defeat, but I hear the sound of singing. They're having worship at the foot of the mountain. And they are singing at the top 
of their lungs. Anything wrong with singing at the top of your lungs? Of course not. We do it here. But watch. And so it was, verse 19, that as soon as he came near the camp, that he saw the calf and the dancing. And not just singing. They are dancing in the aisles. And it is a raucous cacophony. And so Moses' anger became hot and he cast the tablets out of his hands and he broke them at the foot of the mountain. And then the next verse, he comes up to that golden calf. And obviously, verse uh, verse 20 takes hours because he has to knock the calf down. He has to melt the calf and then grind up the dust. He pours it into the stream that flows from Mount Sinai through through the desert floor. And then he commands the people, now you drink this water because I want to make a point. You are now drinking your God. Your God is gold flakes inside of you. So you worship that. And once they have drunk that polluted water, and here's a leadership moment, if there are any leaders here, is it, Moses comes to Aaron, verse 21, and Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? They influenced you and you've made them sin. What's up? And now watch this, the very next verse, a dramatic leadership contrast, because just moments ago, atop the mountain... Moses is begging for his people. But now Aaron, in a moment of leadership cave-in, he doesn't beg for the people. He blames the people instead. Can you believe it? You're a leader and it's their fault. It is their, it was their idea. Oh, my Lord. Aaron says to his younger brother, do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. I mean, you know the people, they're set on evil. What I did was I threw this gold into the fire. And you see it at the end of verse 24. And this calf came out. I don't know how it happened, but it just, this calf came out. Please, Moses, don't be mad at me. Moses tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 9, our theme book for this series, Deuteronomy 9 verse 20, that God would have destroyed Aaron if Moses hadn't interceded for him. He begged for Aaron's life. And God says, okay, you can have your brother. And then Moses, what is this, verse 26? No, no, verse 25. And now when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among their enemies. By the way, the Hebrew word for unrestrained here is para. It can be translated unclothed or uncontrolled. They were half naked. They've gone into this wild orgy to the shame of the enemies that surround them. And Moses cried out in verse 26. He stood at the entrance of the camp and he said, whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. Because in this battle between good and evil, there is no third side. There is no middle ground. How long will you limp between two opinions? If God is God, you worship God. If Satan is Satan is God, you worship him. You can't limp back and forth. You've got to take a stand at some point. You have to. And they did. Early the next morning. Heartbroken, Moses climbs back up that shaly slope to the smoky summit where God is awaiting. And this is verse 31. Then Moses returned to the Lord and he said, all these people have committed a great sin. You were right. They have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin... And until we get to eternity and we personally ask Moses, how are you going to finish that sentence? We do not know how that sentence ends because the sentence is cut off. If you will forgive their sins, then I will, then they will, then you will. He doesn't say he's just cut off. It isn't a stretch of an imagination. 
to sense that sob that just chokes his sentence in mid-sentence. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, stop, choke. But if not, I pray, blot me out of their book, which you have written. I don't understand leadership like that, do you? That you're willing to substitute yourself for the sake of your people? Come on. The author of the Bible commentary poignantly observes, It is not easy to estimate the measure of love in such men as Moses. And by the way, Paul did it in Romans chapter 9. He said, If only I could be accursed, lost forever, so that God could save the Jews. Both Moses and Paul. It is not easy to estimate the measure of love in such men as Moses and Paul. For our limited powers of reason do not comprehend it any more than a little child is able to comprehend the courage of heroes. I have no understanding of the courage of heroes. I cannot comprehend that selfless love. It is the the profound reflection of Christ the intercessor for the human race. Blot me out. God waves aside. Come on. He said, the only people I blot out are the people that sin. Forget that idea. He said, in fact, Moses, I've been thinking about it. You know what? I'm going to send my angel with you. I'm going to send my angel. You will go to the promised land. But listen to me. I am not going to go with you. Do you understand? I am not going to go with your people. I'll send my angel and you go instead. And when the people hear it, and now we're coming to the punchline. When the people hear it, chapter 33, look at this. When they hear God's decision, verse 4, when the people heard this bad news, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. Verse 5, for the Lord had said to Moses, say to the children of Israel, you are a stiff necked people. I could come into your midst in one moment and consume you. Now, therefore, take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. So, verse 6. The children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb, the end. That's it. Once upon a time, there was a people who were the chosen. And they suffered through a terrible moral meltdown. But out of their crisis, they were taught two critical lessons. Two vital lessons for the chosen who live today to learn. Not over, not, not a year of living biblically, but a lifetime of living biblically. I want you to jot these two lessons down. And so would you reach into your worship bulletin, please, and pull out today's study guide. Take it out. Two lessons. Jot them down. Ushers, let's get uh, study guides, please, to any who need a study guide. You came in, a bunch of you with just one bulletin. Hold your hand up. Our ushers in the balcony, here at the front, in the back. Let's move this quickly. Gentlemen, thank you. And those of you who are watching on television, let me put a website on the screen for you. You see it there www.pmchurch.tv That's our website, pmchurch.tv Go to that website. This series is called The Chosen. You go to The Chosen. And today's teaching, How Much of Naked is Acceptable? You'll see right beside that title, the words study guide. Click that little box on your screen. You'll have the identical study guide as we have it. I'd like you to jot these two lessons down, please. Everybody have one? All right, keep your hands up. Ushers are slowly making their way to the back. They will get to you, but I'm going to keep moving. Lesson number one. Write it down, please. A revival of morality leads to a revival of modesty. Did you get that? A a, a revival of morality leads to a revival of modesty. So how much of naked is acceptable? Come on, as the story that we have just read uh, portrays, you can't talk about modesty without talking about sexuality. So write this down. When, When the children of Israel became unclothed, 
They became uncontrolled. It's the same word in the Hebrew, unclothed and uncontrolled. Keep your pen moving. Because modesty is a protective wall for sexuality. The two are divinely intended to go hand in hand. A friend of mine loaned me this book this week. I would never have bought this book in a hundred years. And I have not read it all the way through. I'll show, you to, I'll show you to cover the book. It's called Sexy Girls. How hot is too hot? All right? Don't get too close. How hot is too hot? It's written by Haley DeMarco. There's, since there's no way, there is no way that I would be able to say any of this without blushing. I'm going to let a woman say it because she already wrote it. Let me just tell you what the book is about. You'll get it from the, from the, uh, you know, the little page right behind the title page. They're quoting an anonymous youth pastor. And I can see why it's anonymous. Confessions of a youth pastor. One line. Just the whole page. One line. It's hard to speak to your hearts when all I see is your parts. You got the point of the book? Yeah. Let me just read something to you. I had to really edit this in first church. I don't want any health crises. All right. So, so I'm looking at this book. Here's a, here's a little headline. Remem- listen, ladies and gentlemen. By the way, guys, listen up. Remembering the under in underwear. That's a thought. Okay, here it goes. Ever think it's ever think it's a cute and sexy little trick to lift the top of your underwear ever so slightly above your waistband? Or what if your undies just happen to show when you sit down? That isn't so bad, is it? I mean, come on, it's not sexual, is it? Hey, look at it from the guy's perspective. When you show off your underwear, the first thing a guy thinks about is what you look like with just your undies on. And the second thing he thinks is that if you're so willing to show him part of your underwear, then you're probably willing to show all of your underwear. In his mind, you immediately become, well, sexual. And he will treat you accordingly, which means he will show you attention, but it is purely sexual. That's not to mention all the guys that you don't even know are using you as their own personal peep show. Basing your image on your relationships on pure sexuality is a recipe for disaster. Guys don't take sexual girls seriously. They just don't. They think about using them until their next conquest. They're so clouded by your body parts that they won't see you for the amazing girl that you are. So be careful when you play around with an image that is free enough to expose all your delicates. Besides, you probably didn't buy them at Victoria's Public Knowledge. (laughs) Have you ever heard of that store, Victoria's Public Knowledge? Because it's no secret. You finally got it. It's not wise to use your freedom, or shall I say, flaunt your freedom in front of guys. It might seem like a cheap thrill, but in the spiritual scheme of things, it's a trip down a messy road that can lead to spiritual, physical, and emotional destruction. Come on. And by the way, uh, uh, way, guys, they're not the only ones showing underwear. Some of you guys, your crotch is so low, it's dragging on the sidewalk and you can see everything up your back. What's up with that? You probably think it's attractive. See me afterwards. Okay, here's just one more. I got to go. 
uh, the eyes have it. Trust me when I say that guys are visual creatures. They are turned on by what they see. See, you heard one yes. The rest of the guys are all saying amen in their hearts. You show them a bit of your, and she names a piece of the anatomy I'll leave out, or some of that long leg of yours, and bam, testosterone city. They are instantly dreaming of what they saw. It might seem gross, juvenile, or impossible that a guy would want to touch you just because he can see a part of you. But trust me, it's true. I've talked to hundreds of guys about girls, and it's the same whatever state, country, or province I'm in. They are turned on by your flesh. We girls, this is insightful to me. We girls are so used to our flesh that we don't think anything about it. We undress in front of each other. You do? Huh? We undress, we undress in front of each other. We share a dressing room. We sleep together in our t-shirts and we think nothing of sexual stuff. And so it can seem strange to us that guys see a little flesh and they go all sexual on us, but it's true. That's why guys are more likely not to share a bed, king size or not, with another guy when crashing at a friend's house or on a road trip. I will not sleep in that bed. I am sleeping on the floor. Do you understand? I am not going in that bed with you, dude. That's just the way we are. Because it's too suggestive. You get her point, don't you? That's why it's way too visual for them. They aren't casual about our bodies like we are. Any hint of flesh they see in its daydream city for better or for worse. So I'm going to say one word here that I would not do among others in first church. So if you're showing the very tippy top of your cleavage because you think. Who cares? It's not like they can see the rest of me. Funny thing. No, they don't actually see. She puts the rest of you. But they do start imagining what it looks like. I'm glad summer is over and we're dealing with this in a chilly fall. <laughs> we were sitting together in, uh, in our last spiritual life committee in the conversation. A bunch of us turned to uh, MySpace and Facebook and somebody made the comment. And I'm going to pass it on to you. Do you do you realize how much you're exposing yourself to the world by the pictures that you post in MySpace? Do you understand? The world sees. Oh, no, it's just my friends. No, no. The world sees. Are you sure you want that pose to all your visitors? Bill Chobotar, uh, in charge of our medical students here who go on to uh, medicine, told me after first church, he said, Dwight, I want to tell you something. I was, in a meet- I was in meetings this week up at the University of Michigan. The director of admissions for a medical school in the state of Michigan says, you know what? When, when students apply to our medical school, we require that they give us their, their MySpace and Facebook addresses. If they refuse, we will refuse to consider their application. Employers now are searching the web to find out what about you is out there that the rest of the world knows and that you're not telling them. You think about it, sis or bro. You want that picture of you? So what's the, let, let, let's put this in spiritual perspective. Back to your study guide. Jesus said, Sermon on the Mount, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's Matthew 5, 28. Listen, lady, if you are dressing for his eyes, you may be dabbling with his fall. Come on. We're just that way. So, of course, modesty and how you and I dress is a moral issue. It is a moral. I know, I know. Guys ought to be stronger, but we are not. And by the way, you're not so strong yourself. 
That's why Paul writes here in, what is this, 1 Corinthians 8, 9, fill it in. Beware lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. Trust me, men are weak, so are women. And so Paul says, if I have a liberty, I am not going to flaunt my liberty in front of you. It doesn't bother me, but I'm not going to do it in front of you because if it leads you to sin, I'm responsible. I won't do it. So how much of naked is acceptable? Israel undressed at the foot of Mount Sinai, and it was all downhill from there, and it took a meltdown to bring a revival. Lesson number one, a revival of morality leads to a revival of modesty. Write it down. Lesson number two, final lesson. Lesson number two, a revival of spirituality leads to a revival of simplicity. Get those two words, spirituality. A revival of spirituality leads to a revival of simplicity. Because, by the way, What happened at the foot of Mount Sinai was not an isolated incident. Long before Mount Sinai, Jacob, who was given the name Israel, he had he called for a spiritual revival in his tribe. They went through revival and notice what happened. We'll put this on the screen. Genesis chapter 35. Then God said to Jacob, arise, go to Bethel, house of God, where I gave you that dream years ago. I want you to go there and dwell. Make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. And Jacob then says, he turns to his tribe, about 70 people, to all who were with him. Put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel. And I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress. And has, hallelujah, been with me in the way which I have gone. Now notice. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands and the ear rings which were in their ears and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree which was by Shechem spiritual revival breaks out in the community of the faithful and they bury their earrings this is not a female thing this is not a male thing this is an everybody thing they all bury their ornaments so what's going on very interestingly Scholars believe that the second revival at the foot of Mount Sinai resulted in a lasting, listen now, a lasting abandonment of ornamental jewelry by the children of Israel. Are we still there? Yeah. Exodus 33. It's right in front of you. So drop down to verse 6 again. Exodus 33, verse 6. So the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb. Now, the preposition by in the English is translating the Hebrew preposition mean. And mean is almost always translated from. Leading some scholars and the New American Standard Bible to render this verse, jot it down in your study guide. So Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. That was it from then on. Amazingly, archaeological excavations in early Israelite sites with rare exceptions uncover very little Jewelry and only a poor quality at that. So you're saying, okay, Dwight, Pastor, what does that mean? You won't find jewelry in the Bible? Oh, no, you'll find jewelry in the Bible. The most comprehensive treatment of jewelry in the Bible has been written, in my, my, my opinion, by Angel Rodriguez. It's his book, Jewelry in the Bible, in which he makes three, three observations that I am still ruminating on, and it's number three. But I'll share all three with you. Jot them down, please, in your study guide. Number one, Rodriguez. The Bible recognizes diverse functions, diverse functions for jewelry. Yeah, there's jewelry for status. That would be called a crown. A king wears it. Ezekiel 16, by the way, some people, it it shows God finding Israel by the side of the road. Just a little waif 
little baby. He washes her, wraps her in swaddling clothes. She grows up into a, into a lovely young woman. And then he says, I'm going to marry you. I'm the king of the universe. You will become my bride, Queen Israel. And he decks her in glorious clothing and jewelry. The jewelry that he decks her with, bedecks her with, is status jewelry. I am queen. So there are different functions. Number one uh, is status. Number two, there's authority. That's the royal or family signet ring. You know, Darius, uh, Daniel in the lion's den. He puts his ring down, seals that lion's den. Jesus in the parable of the prodigal son. The boy comes home and they're so excited. They put the ring back on the boy. That's the family. That's a, that's a symbol of authority. Number three, for spiritual leadership. You want to talk about the high priest of Israel? He had this massive, this 12 semi-precious stones arranged on his chest. And what's called the ephod. The only person in the entire community that could wear that. Glorious gems. And finally, the Bible does recognize that some wear jewelry for ornamentation. And you see the references there. So there are three observations. I'm ruminating on these. Here's observation number two from Rodriguez. Number two, the Bible recognizes that jewelry is not intrinsically evil. Come on, the New Jerusalem, the streets are going to be paved in gold. And the 12 foundations to the walls are 12 semi-precious stones. God created every gem on earth. He has a right to those gems. The point is, minerals are not moral agents. The danger of jewelry is located in the heart of the wearer, not simply in the object itself. Which leads to number three. Finally, number three. The Bible portrays ornamental jewelry as incompatible with the personal adornment of the people of God. In Rodriguez's words, the Bible regards jewelry with a, quote, general pejorative attitude, end quote. For that reason, when spiritual revival breaks out in the tribe of Jacob, the ornaments come off. It is a moral issue. For that reason, when spiritual revival again breaks out with the children of Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai, the ornaments come off at God's command. It is a moral issue. Until, and, and by the way, from that point on, no more ornamental jewelry until centuries later they apostatize. Watch this. And God has to send Isaiah to them. Isaiah 3. God's calling for a revival. Isaiah 3, verse 18. In that day, the Lord will take away the finery, the jingling anklets, the scarves, and the crescents, and the pendants, and the bracelets, and the veils, the headdresses, the leg ornaments, and the headbands, the perfume boxes, the charms, and the rings, the nose jewels, the festal apparel, and the mantles, the outer garments, the purses, and the mirrors, the fine linen, the turbans, and the robes. Revival time again for the chosen. And then along comes Jesus, the incarnate God of the universe, who could have worn, rightfully worn every gem in the universe and every crown piled on top of his head. And how does Jesus come? He comes to show us the divine value of simplicity. He has one robe to his life and they will gamble for it at the foot of his cross. No coins, no jewels, no house, nothing. But the divine principle of modest simplicity. And then he has the gall to look at you and me and say, hey, guys, follow me. The New Testament church did, which is why they embraced that same principle of modest simplicity. The same principle as Jesus. And so you'll read this in the New Testament. This is first Peter, chapter three, verse three. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. 
Write it down. You see, in both the Old and the New Testaments, guys, the principle is the same. Humans value the outward appearance, but God values the heart. That's what counts. Rodriguez goes on to point out that, in fact, the final, the final appearance of women in the Bible is in the book of Revelation. Two women. One woman representing the people of God, not a single piece of jewelry upon her body. The other woman representing the antagonist to the people of God, and her body is covered with gold and gems and pearls. God is making a point. It is a moral issue. It is a moral issue. So what's the point? Write it down. God calls the chosen to a life of modest simplicity. That's the point. I understand very well that it is a countercultural life to which he's calling all of us. But to follow Jesus has always been countercultural, has it not? Come on. The Mennonite author Donald Craybell, in describing Christ's kingdom, calls it an upside down kingdom. It's the exact opposite of the world. And that's why 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, is God's plea. Guys, it's not like it is. It's not like it is here. Not my kingdom. So here's my question for you. Answer this for me, please. Why should we allow the executives and designers of the fashion industry to set the parameters for our own walk with God? Huh? Why should Britney Spears... By the way, just yesterday, they released Britney Spears' monthly expenditures, $49,000 on a mortgage every month. And get this, I heard this and I scribbled it down. $15,000 a month on clothes and accessories. $15,000 a month. And she's, she's the goddess of a whole lot of girls a little bit younger than you. So why should Britney Spears and Paris Hilton and Soldier Boy dictate how we dress? Who says we have to wear that to look good, huh? Who says we have to put that on to look dressed up? Who says we have to spend that much money on clothing and accessories? I am not talking about the Seventh-day Adventist church. I'm talking about Christianity, period. She pushed this back onto me. Because, and would you write this down? Modest simplicity is both a moral value and a moral issue. Ah, oh, come on, Pastor. Come on, Dwight, are you suggesting that this is a matter of personal salvation, that I, won't get, that I won't get saved unless I embrace modest simplicity? No, I am not. You won't get saved unless you embrace Jesus. That's the gospel. You embrace Jesus, you'll be just fine, thank you. However, when you embrace Jesus as Savior, you must also embrace Him as Lord. And when He says, hey boy, hey girl, come, follow me, that includes His moral value of modest simplicity. Which, by the way, equal time now, which, by the way, means that the principle of modest simplicity addresses both those $20 studs in the young adult's ears as well as the $40,000 car or the $80,000 motorhome in your driveway. Modest simplicity cuts both ways. Don't you give me this. We have too many legalist adults Walking around, complaining about the $5 stud in the ear when they've got a $50,000 car in their driveway. Don't you talk to these kids about modest simplicity living like that. Modest simplicity cuts both ways. And so you don't want the diamond up here? Hmm? You don't want the diamond up here? Trust me, dropping it six inches does not baptize it.
If you don't want the diamond up here, you better not wear the diamond here. Huh? And while we're at it, it is incongruous. I cannot imagine a God in this universe who would consistently call us to abandon external ornamentation and not have a word to say about houses that are vastly above our economic station or are vastly above our personal need. Modest simplicity cuts both ways. Which is why nobody can judge. Nobody. Oh, great. Well, then that means the university has no right to print in its student handbook these words. And I'll quote, ornamental rings and bracelets, necklace, necklaces and chains, ear, tongue, nose and eyebrow rings are not appropriate at Andrews University. End quote. After all, Dwight, you just said nobody can judge. Oh, my friend, you're absolutely right. But a community of faith can choose. And the Seventh-day Adventist church has chosen that as a symbol of our embrace of Jesus' standard of modest simplicity, we choose, like Israel of old, not to wear ornamental jewelry. Why? Because the chosen have always been a counter-cultural movement. That's why. Jesus' life of modest simplicity is our example. He says, come, follow me. By the way, so is his death. You do know how Jesus died, don't you? You know how he died. He died naked. There isn't an artist in the world that would realistically portray the crucifixion. Christ with no clothes on. He died naked to redeem us from our own moral nakedness. So the question, how much of naked is acceptable? Why don't you ask that of the God who became naked? So that he might cover our nakedness. With the spotless robe of his perfect, modest simplicity. Let us pray. Oh God, we see Jesus hanging naked on Calvary. And all we can say is thank you from the depths of our hearts. Our God came. And for us he died. Holy Father, grant to us as a community of faith the courage now to follow after Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.